and when you got to the main house, take us right there. Like right now as you're walking in the house, what were your observations? It was hard because I know she wasn't going to be coming back. And I didn't want to move. I didn't want to move her stuff. Emotional testimony today from the Murdoch family housekeeper when she took the stand in Alec Murdoch's double murder trial. The former lawyer is accused of killing his wife Maggie and son Paul in Colleton County. Let's bring in investigative reporter Ann Emerson right now who was in court today. And Ann Blanca Torribiate Simpson was Maggie's right hand on the domestic front and has intimate knowledge that now plays a pivotal role in the state's case. Well, in addition to her housekeeping duties, Blanca says she grew to be Maggie's friend and confidant. Now she's the one to share Maggie's secret concerns with the jury after the brutal murders. She was worried because a lawsuit had been presented stating that they wanted $30 million. Maggie was crying. Maggie said, I... We don't have that kind of money. Blanca says Maggie and Paul were at Moselle on June 7th because Alec told them both to come. She told me, she said, Alec wants me to come home. And she kind of sounded like she didn't want to come home. The morning of the murders, Blanca was at Moselle. She says the defendant was wearing a seafoam green short sleeve polo. And he was getting ready to walk out. He turned around and I said, Alec, I said, um, hold on a minute. I said, your collar's sticking up. So I, I, um, he turned around and I fixed his collar. An important detail, because Blanca says it's the same color. It's not the same shirt. Alec was seen later in the day on the Snapchat video with Paul. Have you ever, ever, ever seen that blue, that shirt again? No, sir, not to, not to my knowledge. But Blanca says after that video surfaced, Alec suggested to her it was the same shirt. And he said, well, you know what? I was wearing that shirt. He said, um, you know, in the um, that day and still I, I was just I didn't say anything but I was kind of thrown back because I don't remember that I don't remember him wearing that shirt that day when he left I know what shirt he was wearing because I fixed the collar Blanca says Alec asked her to go to Moselle the day after the murders Blanca said things were out of place and the shower had been used on the floor next to the shower was um, a slight puddle of water, a towel, and a pair of khaki pants. She washed those clothes, cleaned the shower even, and under cross-examination, the defense asked why Blanca was cleaning the house just hours after the murders. But just as importantly, did she see any blood? This is the first time that I have ever been in a situation where somebody was murdered. Right. I didn't know as far as what you're asking me, if there was anything bloody in there, no, it did not appear to be anything bloody in there. A few days after the murder, Alec asked Blanca to pick up Maggie's car from the sheriff's lot. And she says while she was cleaning the car, she found Maggie's wedding band under the driver's seat. Reporting live from Walterboro tonight, I'm Ann Emerson. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. In this episode, I want to return to the crime scene and law enforcement's response. I told you I wasn't done yet, and there's still a lot more to unpack, including the matter of Alec Murdoch's clothes, his phone data and car data, as well as the timeline and his June 10th interview by law enforcement. There was also a second police body-worn camera, which was on Officer Buford McDowell. Now, according to the police report, Buford McDowell arrived on the scene and helped Sergeant Green establish the crime scene, located and marked shell casings with crime scene tape, and took a post on one side of the scene. He wrote in the crime report that once enough units arrived on the scene, that he left and resumed his assigned road patrol duties. Now, I was just reading from the crime report in his exact words, and some of the words are actually redacted. Well, a lot of the words are redacted. But it's important to share with you that I have seen the police report too. In fact, it was released just days after the double murders of Maggie and Paul. 
Now, I'm trying to remember, but I can't recall ever having seen that before in 27 years. This is such a bizarre aspect of the case, releasing a crime report for a live double homicide. I'm still trying to get my head round it. And I also just want to compare and contrast it with the fact that I'm still trying to get sighting of key missing pages from the Byford report, which you would be familiar with if you listened to the first case on Crime Analyst, The Forgotten Victims. Now that case is more than 40 years old, and yet the Home Office and lawyers still claim that it's not in the public interest to release those pages to me. I'll get to this extraordinary decision to release the crime report and what was contained within it. However, it is worth pointing out right here that Boothard McDowell also wrote in the crime report that he and his colleagues were not equipped to deal with homicides. So that may explain some of their behaviour on that night, but not all of it. Remember, that night, Murdoch left the sled interview in the car and he invited others to the crime scene. Many of them then went to the house. Remarkably, the house wasn't searched or sealed off, and nor was Murdoch's mother's house. Despite the large and complex crime scene, state law enforcement released Moselle back to the family on the morning after the murders. This is so perplexing. The next morning, Murdoch asked the family housekeeper, Blanca Churubiati Simpson, to clean the home the way Maggie would have liked. You heard Blanca in the clip at the top of the episode testifying that the house had no crime scene tape and that she washed a towel and khaki pants that she found on the floor. Investigators came inside while she was there, she said, but they didn't question her. It makes absolutely no sense to release the crime scene the next morning. That's just one of many other confounding decisions that are puzzling and troubling after the brutal murders of Maggie and Paul, and I'm going to try and unravel some of them. But before I do, I want to talk about Sled's interview with Murdoch three days after the murders on June the 10th. The interview was an hour long, and there's a lot of very important details in it, and I'm going to give you the highlights – And as you know, I like you to hear things for yourselves so that you can make your own decisions about what you're hearing and I'll share my analysis and thoughts with you. I do this as it's a better way to learn and I want you to arrive at your own conclusions and for you to understand how I arrive at mine. Now, some people really like the storytelling aspect and I get it, but Crime Analyst is about storytelling and about learning and moving the needle and I want you to be present and active in that. And if that's not your jam, that's okay too. You can just exit the podcast. You really don't have to announce that you're leaving. It's not an airport. But if you do appreciate what I do, I would very much appreciate a five-star review. So please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst. Okay, let's get back to the business of analysing this interview, which was in a car again. Murdoch was back in the passenger seat and Special Agent David Owen was back in the driving seat. Now behind Special Agent David Owen was Jim Griffin, Murdoch's lawyer. And behind Murdoch was SLED Senior Special Agent Jeff Croft. Now at the start of the interview, Murdoch was chatting to his sister-in-law, Marion, for about the first minute, and he comes across as being pretty easy breezy and relaxed. After he hung up the call... Sled agent David Owen talked to him about taking an imprint of his phone right at the top of the interview. Now, there's quite a lot of discussion about the detail of that, of how it works, and Murdoch has to sign a release and so forth, so I'm not going to subject you to listening to that. But what I will say is that there's a lot of sniffing and snorting from Murdoch across this interview, and it's really disgusting. And you should hear it for yourself. So take a note of when Murdoch does it, What questions are being asked of him and what happens regarding his answers as a result of all the noises that he's making? Okay, so Special Agent David Owen got the passcode from Murdoch and then left the car to get the imprint going. As he jumped out the car to see the tech guy, Murdoch asked where the other officer was from and they started shooting the breeze discussing people that they knew. Murdoch asked, so you know Big John Beddingfield? Yes, said Jeff Croft. Well, that's my cousin and sweet Caroline, Murdoch replied. 
This little snippet is really a who's who smorgasbord fest with Alec Murdoch. He loves to name drop his good old boy's network and his family connections. And even in this conversation and going forward, there's a lot of surring going on amongst the sniffing and the coughing and the opening the car door and spitting and the slurping on the drink and the who's who bro chat. Now, just a gentle reminder of the context of this interview, it's just days after Maggie, Murdoch's wife, and Paul, his son, were found dead at Moselle, and this is what Murdoch spent his time chatting about. With Special Agent David Owens returning to the car, he directs Murdoch to give him an overview of June the 7th, and he caveats it with saying that it's traumatic, but that they need to go through some details regarding the timeline for Monday, so he asked him to start with Monday morning. Listen to Murdoch's response. Let's start Monday morning and, and take me through your day. Monday morning, uh, you know, did I do Monday morning? Um, my wife and my older son had gone to the baseball games that weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I really can't remember what I did Monday. I know I went to work. But, you know, I think I was dragging a little bit from the weekend, Mm -hmm. and but I went to work. Um, I usually mess around on my farm, and then I go to work. Um, I was at work. Um, You know. Were you at the office in Hampton? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I was at my office in Hampton. Um, uh, You know, I mean, I was just at my office doing. Legal work. Yes, sir. I'm sure I can go back and probably recreate some specifics if you need me to, but I can't like sit here and recall on the top of my head exactly mm-hmm. what I was working on. I know one thing I was working on um, was we had some we had some big motions coming up in a um, Dominion Energy case. I was getting ready for those, and uh, I was getting ready for some motions. I'm a defendant in a civil case involving my son i told you about mm-hmm. the boat wreck yes sir and there were some motions coming up in that on thursday and i was mostly just getting ready for those things okay. and then other jump uh what time did you leave the house to go to the office i'm not sure uh okay. who, who all was at the house when you left to go to my office yes, that sir. morning mm-hmm. or when you got up who was at the house i'm sure my wife was um, and I can't remember if Blanca had made it out there yet or not. And who is Blanca? Blanca is our housekeeper. Okay, okay. And she comes mm-hmm. different. She doesn't have set hours, but she comes most days. Um, she'll be able to tell you if I yeah. was there when when I when she left or not. Okay. I, I just I can't remember. And so you you went to the office. You did you know some motions. Uh, what time did you leave the office? I left a little bit earlier than normal because my son Paul was coming home because okay. um, he had not been with us that, during the weekend and he was coming home. We were going to um, we were going to replant some sunflowers the next day okay. and so he was calibrating, doing and getting everything ready. Um, so he got home a little early. I left a little early so he and I could knock around and we knocked around for you know, just doing things we like to do out there. Okay. You know, we're riding around looking at um, um, food plots, looking, you know, look looking for hogs, a little bit of target shooting, just bullshitting. Yeah. The question about the timeline on Monday morning seems to throw Murdoch. Monday morning, uh, you know... What did I do Monday morning? Like, what the hell? That's the day that your wife Maggie and your son Paul were murdered. And it's not top of his mind what he did on Monday. Or that that was the question that was going to be asked. What he is okay about sharing is all the extraneous information, lots of detail that he can recall, but the important details about what time he left the house or who was there at the house, he blanked on. He doesn't know if Blanca, the housekeeper, was there. Fortunately, Blanca has a much better recall than Murdoch, and you will hear more about what she had to say. 
calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Murdoch said Paul was coming home and they were going to replant the sunflowers the next day. Yes, back to those pesky sunflowers. And then he goes on about Paul's movements and how close he was with John Marvin. But he didn't know what time Paul came home. Take a listen to this. Okay. And then he worked for John Marvin and he came home Monday afternoon. Okay. About roughly what time in the afternoon? You know, I would think it'd be somewhere in the five o'clock range, a little bit. It was it was broad daylight when we were. It wasn't dusk, dark, or late. Okay. You know, and we rode. Uh, you know, we just rode around. We rode mm-hmm. around our dove field, looking at how the corn was doing. He, he had, um, he and I had planted corn in the dove field, and he planted the corn in the duck pond, and he was, you know, showing me how much better his corn was doing than mine was. <laughs> And um, we rode around the duck pond. I mean, we just, you know, we rode the property. Yes, sir. You know, we just, we rode the property. Um, then, you know, I mean, we, we rode around so much. Um, we just rode. Okay. Uh, probably. We, it was a yeah. good little while. It was yeah. more than 20 minutes or yeah. 30 minutes. Okay. And, you know, was it two hours? I don't know. I'd say it was more than an hour probably. Really wasn't keeping track of time. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't getting dark. Mama wasn't home yet. She had gone to a doctor's appointment. Um, so, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> they just rode. They rode about for a good while. Murdoch just cannot give a straight answer about the timeline. Take a listen to this. And, you know, we sat down, we ate supper, which we usually eat supper together. Um, So um, the one thing I remember, I don't know how much detail y'all want. So if I start talking about something that you don't need, just tell me and I'll move to something else. The the more detail, the better. So Paul has been having um, high blood pressure Mm -hmm. and 
his mama was worried sick about it. So we were actually, you know, this was a, a direct thing, getting him, he doesn't like to go to doctors, making him go get his blood pressure checked. His feet had swollen up recently. Wow. So, you know, that was, it, it was, a, it was a, a big, huge deal. Okay. Murdoch said at some point they were all back at the house together and had supper. Well, that really wasn't by magic, I can assure you. But there was no mention at this point of who made dinner or what they ate. Notice that there are no details about this and he moved off the subject pretty quickly to Paul having high blood pressure and that he had swollen feet and his mother was worried sick about it. OK, then Murdoch said Maggie went to the kennels. You should really listen to this section as you need to hear exactly what he said for yourselves. Uh, you know, we hung around the house for a little while. Uh, I know that Maggie went to the kennels. Um, I don't know exactly where Paul went, but he left the house too. Okay. How did Maggie get down to the kennels? I don't know exactly. But on normal occasions, she would drive, drive a buggy, drive a four-wheeler, or very common for her to walk. Okay. How about Paul? What's... Paul wasn't much of a walker, but he would use all of the others. Okay. Um, but, it, it, I mean, it could be anyway, okay. you know? I, I don't know exactly. I wish I could help you with that. So, so they left and went down to the kennels? Well, Maggie went to go to the kennels. Okay, Paul, and Paul left. And I'm assuming, you know, I'm assuming Paul left okay. because of, you know, gotcha. what happened. I mean, I'm assuming Paul yeah, yeah. went to the kennels. Okay. Um, and what did you do once once Maggie and Paul left? I stayed in the house. Okay. And I was watching TV, looking at my phone, and I actually fell asleep on the couch. Okay. Murdoch said he didn't know where Paul went, but he left the house too. He said that Maggie would drive a buggy or a four-wheeler, or more commonly, she would walk. I find it hard to believe that Maggie would walk up to the kennels on her own in the dark. I mean, it's dark and creepy. And what about the animals? It's a hunting lodge. Why would Maggie walk or even want to go to the kennels by herself at night? I'm going to return to this. So Murdoch said Paul left and he stayed in the house watching TV and looking at his phone and that he fell asleep. He said he woke up and texted Maggie and that he called her before that and that she didn't answer. And then he left to go to his mother's house. So again, for me, this is suitably vague. And what's interesting are Murdoch's you knows. And when he said, and I actually fell asleep on the couch, he gave a sideways glance to David Owen to see how that landed. At 13 minutes and 58 seconds, Murdoch's asked what time he woke up. Take a listen to this. And what time did you, you know, I don't know exactly what time I woke up, but when y'all get my phone, you know, I think one of the first things I did when I got up was call Maggie mm -hmm. because I was going to my mom's. Mm -hmm. um, and I know I texted her because I checked my phone. And what time did we say the text was, Jim? Like 9.06? I, I didn't see it. Yeah, I, I got it written down from the other I night. showed you the other yes, night, yes, didn't yes, I? Yes, sir, I got this. So, you know, I texted her. So I called her just before that. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, she, she didn't answer at that point. Um, and I left to go to... My mom's. Okay. Y'all just have to look. I, I don't. Yeah. I'm not sure if I called Paul. Well, or and, not. and that and that's why we're getting the phone so we can nail down the times and right. and, and everything. Um, so I left. I drove. Uh, well, you know, I'm gonna tell y'all this, even though I think it's kind of crazy. You know, I was certain that I heard them pull up. I mean, I was positive that I heard. And, and people don't just come out there. You know, we don't get, like, passed through. I was certain that I heard them pull up, but I, but they didn't. Okay. Um, well, if you, if you heard something pull up, what did it sound like? You know, I, 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 don't, I can't tell you what it sounded like. I just know that I thought, they, I thought that, that my wife had pulled up or I mean, that Paul it, had pulled up. Would it, would it have been the buggy that she normally drives or would it be a car? No, no. I, I, I had the impression that a, that a, a car pulled up. Okay. You know? And, and had you woken up by that time, but hadn't left for your mom's? Yep. Okay. And 
and but it wasn't much time in between there because mm -hmm. I left pretty damn close. It wasn't much time between me waking up and me leaving the house. Okay. Um, and when I went outside, you know, there there's a cat, a wild cat that lives around that house. Okay. I'm pretty sure it was the cat that ran okay. from my car, but... <laughs> You know, I never had the impression it was a person, but there was something. Okay. You know, but I really don't think, you know, I'm just throwing that yeah, out no, there no, because it was in my mind. Yeah, nope, that's fine. All that's, right. That's totally fine. I left, I drove to, I drove to my mom's, um, I she, checked on my mom. she lives mom. right out here, correct? She, she lives at Alameda, okay. checked on my mom, talked with Shelly for a few minutes, you know. Um, Shelly is? The caregiver. Okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, I know that I called some people on the way that I know I returned a call from my brother John. Um, I know that I called Chris Wilson. Um, I know that I talked to Buster. Um, So I made a few phone calls. Okay. And where was Buster? Buster was in Rock Hill. Okay. Is that he, where he lives or? No, he lives in Columbia, but he just started a new job. He he's going back to law school in January. Okay. So he's working a little part time job um, with Wild Wings. Okay. Uh, through January. Gotcha. You know, just kind of killing time. And he was in um his girlfriend lives in Rock Hill. She's studying for the bar exam, so he had to be in Charlotte, so he was staying with her in Rock Hill, her and her mom. Okay. Can I open this door? Yes, sir. <clears throat> so, All right, so where are we? All right, you, so then you, you I left, left your mom's, mom's and making phone calls. I left my mom's. Murdoch said he doesn't know what time, but his phone will show that he called Maggie and he texted her at 9.06pm. Here he's leaking out that he knows the phone data is very important. But my question is still, why not just go to the kennels and speak with Maggie yourself? He did get her round there after all because his father was ill, so this just doesn't make sense in his storytelling. Does anything else stand out to you at this point? One of the things that stands out to me, and I do recommend that you watch this interview for yourself so that you can see his demeanour and what's going on in the car, but what stands out to me is just how remarkably calm Murdoch is throughout this interview. And there's no urgency. He's not saying I'm frustrated and I need to know whether you know who killed them or that he was scared. He is very exacting in his delivery, his demeanour and his cadence. And he is relaxed. Now, there are indicators to me that he's interested in how his story lands. Murdoch also shared a lot of detail about irrelevant people and subjects throughout this hour-long interview, but really struggled with specifics about the timeline, his behaviour, and that night. In terms of statement analysis, and this is what I'm doing here, breaking it down, these are indicators of deception. And the snorting and the spitting... Now, I can't tell you if he always did that when he was interacting with people, but it's truly gross and it's distracting. He continued to slurp a big drink through a straw, and at this point he adjusted his crotch, and he really dug in there, and then he tried to take back control of the conversation and narrative. Now, what I take away from that is this is a man who's really not worried regarding his poor manners. He's used to doing exactly how he pleases without any form of consequence. And I see it in every micro detail of this interaction. He is concerned, however, about whether his story is being believed. After visiting his mother, he told Special Agent David Owen he went back to the house. No one was there. He got in his car and went to the kennels. And you know... Murdoch said he found Maggie and Paul and he knew it was bad. He said, I saw it, you know, and I called 911. 
and then he glanced sideways at Special Agent David Owen, who sat in the driving seat. Listen to the next question and the answer. I got in the car, I went back to the kennels, and, you know. And you, when you went back to the kennels, besides Maggie and Paul, did you see anybody, any cars? I didn't see take, anything take right then, no, sir. Take your time. You know, I saw Maggie and I saw Paul laying down. I knew, you know, I didn't know, you know, I, I knew it was bad. I went over there and, you know, I saw it. Yeah. And, you know, I called 911. Okay. And what what made you decide to go back to the house and get a gun? Yeah, I, I, I just think the whole scene had me freaked out. Okay. Did you you take your car back up there, or did you run up there? No, I drove. Okay. The whole scene had him freaked out, he said. But this was a bigger mission than the 911 call. He didn't once say to the dispatcher he was scared or he feared that someone might still be there. There was discussion about which gun he went and got, and then he was asked about who stood out to him as wanting to come after Paul or Maggie. He said he couldn't think of anybody who would go to that extreme. He said he had no idea. Again, here he doesn't mention all his shady financial dealings or his drug problem, not once. He did go on about Paul receiving threats because of the boat crash and that Paul was irresponsible and had ADHD, and Paul would misplace things everywhere. Take a listen to this. I can tell you this, in riding around with Paul, he was his normal bright, you know, just, he was a really great kid. So, being a dad myself, what was the biggest issue you had with Paul? When you had, when you had to call him down and, and scold him or correct him, what was the biggest issue you had with Paul? You know, uh, I mean, I, irresponsibility, you know, um, he was ADHD, he was bad about jumping from, and he had so many wonderful qualities now, mm -hmm. but he was bad about jumping from, he'd start this, maybe not quite finish it, move, do something else, and you know, you'll find out from his friends, he had clothes strung out all over the state. He did that with clothes. He did that with guns. He did that with my boats. He lost. So. He lost what? He, he would misplace stuff or just okay. you know, leave stuff behind, right? Yes, everywhere, everywhere. I mean, he would go off for the weekend. Sometimes he wouldn't pack clothes because he's got clothes in somebody's house. I mean, Paul, Paul was one, he, like, he, he wouldn't understand how you go out, you know, you and one, you and a girl go out on a date. He, 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 he liked the crowd. According to Murdoch, Paul was his normal bright self that day. He was a really great kid. But he was irresponsible. What he doesn't say here was that he was mad with Paul about the boat crash. That's the elephant in the room or in the relationship. And I guess irresponsibility is one way of describing it. Special Agent David Owen returned once more to try and lock Murdoch down on the timeline. Take a listen to this. And what time did Maggie get back home Monday night? It was, it was after Paul and I had gone. She was not there when Paul and I left to go mess around. Okay. So, you know, it was sometime after that. So there was a point when, you know, she got back, we got back. When y'all got back from riding around and messing around on the farm, she, was she home or? Yes. Okay. So, and I don't believe she'd been home too long when, when. What stands out to me is how Murdoch doesn't mention time at all. He avoids it and only define time through the movement of where people were. Now that's curious to me, because in my 27 years of experience, I can tell you that people try and figure out the timeline when they want to truly understand what happened. They play it backwards and forwards over and over in their mind, 
replaying everything. They use their phone and everything they can to try and figure it out. But not Murdoch. He then said Blanca made dinner, and Special Agent David Owen again returned to Murdoch's relationship with Maggie. Take a listen to this. And you said Bianca had prepared dinner that night. Yeah, Blanca. Blanca, Blanca. cooked cook dinner that night because Maggie, Maggie cooks, you know, when the boys are home, or she tries to really for me, but um, she wasn't going to be there that day. So she had Blanca cook a meal. How is your relationship with Maggie? Very good. As good as it could possibly be. I mean, you know, we had our issues, but wonderful. For me, Murdoch just parrots back what he said on the 7th of June. He was asked what they argued about, and he said that they didn't really argue. Then he came up with the stereotypical answer that going to the in-laws and spending more time there was a cause of conflict and tension. And he followed that up by saying that really they had nothing to row about. I find that incredibly hard to believe. Not the money issue of checks bouncing, not Murdoch taking drugs, not the affair, not the boat crash, and certainly not all the financial pressures. Nope, none of that. And the sled officers just let the silence linger. They let it hang. That's intentional. And then this. Take your time. Go. Tissues. I'm sorry. You're good. I mean, she was a wonderful girl and a wonderful wife. And she was a great mother. <clears throat> she, you know, she didn't work. And, and, and <clears throat> she always said it was her job. Since she was privileged enough not to work. She was going to make sure she took care of me and the boys. And I mean, she did everything. <clears throat> she did absolutely everything. <clears throat> I'm sorry. No, no, you have every right to do that. I'm good, you go ahead. Maggie was a wonderful girl, woman, a wonderful wife, a great mother. She didn't work. She always said it was her job. She was privileged enough not to work and take care of me and the boys. Nope, I'm good. You go ahead, he said calmly. And he's back. Throughout that, Murdoch didn't shed one tear, not one. And the subtext here was that he worked really hard to provide for the family. He had all the pressure, and she was the homemaker. Now, at this point, they're halfway through this second interview, and really, they've not established very much in terms of the actual timeline or any specific details. The next questions related to riding around the property and the guns. They established that both Paul and Buster had 300 blackouts. Murdoch said Paul's 300 blackout got stolen, and it had been gone for some time, so Paul would use his brother's blackout. Murdoch said he gave both of them one more than a year ago. Okay, so for me, now it makes sense why he dropped into the interview about Paul and his so-called ADHD and leaving things everywhere. That served a purpose. He's sowing the seed. He said that his memory was that Buster's was black and Paul's was tanned, and he seemed to believe that it was replaced. His memory sure was sharp on some things, and very hazy on specific details that related to the double murder of his wife Maggie and his son Paul and the timeline of that day and evening. And of course, he's conveniently forgotten about the third blackout rifle that they had. In fact, when you listen to this whole interview, he never mentions the word murder. Not once. Now, this is an interesting exchange for you to listen to. Being in law enforcement for so long... And and work in these type cases, and I don't know the Islington era area, but talking to Collinan County and seeing the property and how isolated it is, 
finding somebody that's just going to randomly come up there that late at night that doesn't know the property. You know, that's... So, I, of course, I have to look within and then start working my way out. So you feel like it's not random? You feel like it's intentional? I mean, planned? I, I don't know what to feel right now. And I, I, I hate to say that. I, I don't know what to feel right now. So do y'all have any good clues? All of the evidence that we collected um, Tuesday morning, and we collected additional evidence on Tuesday, on Tuesday afternoon. Um, they collected evidence at autopsy today. So we, we're, we're trying to put a rush on that to get an answer quick. And and hoping that's going to tell us something. By evidence, I mean, is it things you think are going to be helpful? Well, I mean, the, like the shot shells out there, the, the, the casings, um, the DNA swabs that we took from the door handle to see if anybody touched the door handles, um, any other places that we think somebody may have touched while they were out there. Um, you know, we're trying to collect DNA from that and analyze that. Um, which at the conclusion of this, what, what I'm going to also ask is that we get a buccal swab, a DNA swab from you. No problem. Your, I mean, your DNA is going to be there, no. but we need to eliminate it when, when it, once it's developed. Um, so, you know, we don't need stuff. that unknown yeah. when it actually is right. a family member. Or no problem. Um, I mean, we, we have talked to <clears throat> close to a hundred people trying to track people down and we're still tracking people down and that's why you know who who um, Paul was with I want to tell you one thing while yeah. I'm thinking about it yeah Paul was really an incredibly intuitive little dude mm -hmm. and I mean he was like a little detective and I mean Paul would you know he you know what yeah. I'm trying to say yeah Murdoch sure is paying attention now. So you feel it's not random, it's intentional, planned, he restated. Or was he questioning? Any good clues, Murdoch said. And then Special Agent David Owen told him things about the investigation that really should not be shared. And the last comment from Murdoch that he had to share was that Paul was a really intuitive little dude, a great detective. Well, his nickname in the family and what Maggie used to call him was the little detective. And then Murdoch trails off and he's lost for words. And he said, you know what I mean. Now here, I didn't actually know what he meant. And I'm not sure the sled agents did either. And they really should have followed up at this point and asked him to be specific. Special Agent Jeff Croft then weighed in trying to pin Murdoch down on the timeline or sequence of events. He addressed him as Mr. Alec. Take a listen to this. Mr. Alec. Um, you don't have to call me, miss. You just I'm, call I'm me sorry. Alec. Thank you for that. Alec. <clears throat> when, when, when you and Paul got back to the house, Miss Maggie's there, and y'all eat supper, which has been prepared. And you, say, you said you laid down and, and took a little nap. And when you got up, Maggie and Paul was gone, or did they leave when you laid down? Or before I, I believe that I, I'm not. I'm not sure. But they weren't there when you woke up around the nine o'clock mark or so when when you made the call to Maggie to to let her know you was going to your No, office. nobody was in that house when I when I left. <laughs> and just trying to narrow that the, the last time that Paul and you saw Paul and Maggie's when y'all were eating supper yes sir up until you came back from your mom's and, yes, and found what you found yeah I, yes, Alex probably told y'all this Check for a pole. Yes. Oh. 
and, that, and that's why we want to do the DNA. Right. Um, to, to but I'm speaking with tried to turn Paul over do you know if you tried to turn him like towards the kennels or away from the kennels uh, and his phone fell out away I think I turned him away okay. was he left-handed or right-handed he was right-handed where did he normally keep his phone I don't I mean usually in his hand <laughs> most, most but I mean it was all you know, there's always on him, pocket, hand, truck. According to Murdoch, no one was in the house when he left. Special Agent Croft goes back in to get him on record saying that the last time he saw Maggie and Paul was eating supper. The answers were drying up, as you heard, and Murdoch started making noises, loud noises, signalling that he was crying. Now, observing this interview and analysing this interview, and yes, it was an interview and not an interrogation, one thing that I will say is that SLED were incredibly polite and seemed to be going out of their way not to treat Murdoch as a suspect. They wanted him to cooperate, of course they did, and they clearly had areas that they were trying to lean into and pin him down on. Special Agent Croft gently tiptoed back in about Paul and his phone and Murdoch started crying again and shaking. Take a listen. When, the, when, when Paul's phone came out, did you, you just pick it up and put it on, you know, place it back down on him or? You know, yeah, I did not try to open it or anything. You know, I just... I don't know how I had in my mind that I needed to not mess anything up. I had that, I had that, you know, somehow I had that presence of mind that I needed to not mess anything up. And so, I tried not to. And, and you definitely saw a traumatic picture and uh, and I know it's not hard or not not easy I know it's hard uh, and sitting here talking today is, is tough it's just so bad they did it so bad <laughs> he's such a good boy too <clears throat> I'm sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> His crying reached a crescendo, and then he seemed to snap back out of it. I'm sorry, go ahead, he said. But through his sobs, what did you hear there when he was really crying or making that noise? I heard, it's just so bad, I did it so bad. Such a good boy too. Well, the first thing to say is that no, Paul was not a good boy. And Murdoch stating, I did it so bad, well, that was later seen as a confession of sorts. But note that there wasn't a follow-up by SLED. He did what so bad? There was no clarification. Now, perhaps they missed it in the moment, but the follow-ups are really important, and they were missed. And then Murdoch was back in control, thanking them for their time. Well, take a listen to this and note his tone. Well, I just thank y'all for everything, you know. Yeah. My in-laws, my parents, my in-laws, I, I would like somebody to update me or my brother or somebody so that I can tell them as y'all discover things. Unless there's some reason y'all don't do that. Well, <clears throat> I mean, they just have so many questions. There's then some chit-chat about Maggie's mother and father and their health and age and organising an update for them. 
Special Agent David Owen asked Murdoch for Paul's phone password, and Murdoch said Paul was super, super, super secretive, but he did say that he knew Maggie's. So is that why he took Maggie's phone and not Paul's? It might well be. Now, through the tail end of this interview, Murdoch broke down a few more times, and he apologised. Then Special Agent David Owen offered to speak with Maggie's family, Terry and Kennedy Brandstetter, and his sister-in-law, who was closest to Maggie in the whole world, was what Murdoch said. And that was Marion Proctor, and her husband was Mark Proctor. Murdoch then recited all their phone numbers. Now, we don't hear that on camera because it's personal data, it's redacted. But it is impressive, I have to say, that he knew their numbers off the top of his head. And it's extremely rare now too, because we all speed dial. Think about how many numbers that you know that you could dial off the top of your head. Jim Griffin, Murdoch's lawyer, sat in the back of the car, even commented on it about how impressive it was. Take a listen. I promise you, Alex, someone in my life depended on it, I couldn't tell anybody, my mother-in-law or father-in-law. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, I, I, I've been the luckiest person in the world with in-laws. I mean, yeah. they are wonderful. Yeah, I tell people I tell people all the time it's my in-laws that I like, it's my wife's in-laws I don't. There you go. <laughs> let me let me grab a piece of paper, I'll be right back. numbers in my phone if um you want me to dig them up and david i'm, I'm gonna forward you this kind <clears throat> maybe you don't want me to do it like that but I, okay someone sent me wills chaplain's so take a moment to compare the fact that he remembered two sets of numbers and compare it with the fact that he remembered no specifics about the timeline for June the 7th, two days before. Yet he's clearly a detail-oriented person. Murdoch then said he was the luckiest person in the world with his in-laws, as they were so wonderful. And he's smiling, and he snorted and sniffed some more. Special Agent David Owen jumped out of the car to get some paper, and Murdoch takes a big slurp of his drink through a straw and starts shaking again, as if he's crying, and he covered his eyes. I don't see any tears again. No one paid any attention to Murdoch, and then he just started talking again and making weird noises. So this really wasn't an interrogation. It was very relaxed, and Special Agent David Owen ended with talking about a victim advocate who could help with some counselling for Murdoch and Buster. Murdoch said he was familiar with that due to his work, and they ended with Special Agent David Owen saying that he would talk with Maggie's family, and then they talked about a memorial service that was happening the next day for Maggie and Paul. Murdoch said adamantly he didn't want any press near it, and he told Special Agent David Owen that he could call him any time. They then explained that they'd need a buckle swab from Alec Murdoch, and they made arrangements to take that, then and there in the car. Murdoch said he appreciated them taking time to speak with Maggie's family. He then asked if they knew a sled agent, Jarrett Mathup, who lived in the green cabin up by his property, and he said that he was a good boy and a real good officer too. So he's slipping in the good old boys network again. He's a real good officer, he said. Hmm, he's letting them know that he knows people. He just cannot help himself. But strikingly again, he didn't state he was fearful for himself or Buster because the motive was unknown and whoever did this to Maggie and Paul was still out there and that he can't rest until their killer or killers were found. He doesn't say that. Everyone else in the family, the community and his law firm were fearful. This was a big deal. But Murdoch was as calm as you like, asking questions about who they knew. 
The sled agents didn't ask about Murdoch's clothes either, what he was wearing in the morning, and then what he was wearing when he messed about with Paul. Surely the clothing for work would be different to what he wore riding around the property. And then, of course, we know what he was wearing that night when the police turned up. He was wearing a white T-shirt and shorts when Sled interviewed him in the car. And there was a distinct absence of blood. Blanca, the housekeeper, did much better at recalling events leading up to June the 7th, including what Murdoch was wearing. Now, you heard part of her testimony at the top of the episode. What she also said was that Maggie did not go up to the kennels on her own at night. She said Maggie told her she found it dark and scary. And what about those wild pigs and other animals as well on their land? Murdoch said he and Paul were riding around and shooting them in the day. Well, what about at nightfall? More animals would come out, surely, and it was a hunting lodge after all. Behaviourally speaking, it made little sense for Maggie to just casually walk up there on her own in the dark that night. Blanca also testified and said that Maggie was anxious about the boat case and she was very anxious about them being sued for more than $30 She told Blanca that they just didn't have the money and that she felt Alec Murdoch was not being truthful. Well, that would bring the pains on in any relationship, but not according to Murdoch. It was all wonderful, he said. Blanca also recalled what Murdoch was wearing on the morning of June 7th when he left the house, and she said that Murdoch attempted to alter her memory. And that's not the only person that he did that to. He was suitably vague about timings in this interview with the sled agents, just days after Maggie and Paul's murders. Yet in the same time period, after Murdoch's father died, Murdoch went round to his parents' house and tried to plant a new timeline in Shelley Smith's mind. Now, Shelley Smith was Murdoch's mother's, Libby Murdoch's carer. He wanted Shelley to say that he was at his mother's house for 30 to 40 minutes that night. And let me tell you, Murdoch could be very effective at persuading people to his way of thinking. Take a listen to this. Was he there 30 or 40 minutes that night? Not to my recall. Why are you crying, a good family, a good family, and I love working here. And I'm sorry all this happened. Get good people, you know. But he wasn't there no 30 or 40 minutes, was he? No. no. Can't leave the witness. Did that, did that conversation upset you? <clears throat> Somewhat. You upset right now? Yes. Did you call anybody about it? My brother. You called your brother after that conversation with Alex? Yes. To tell him about that conversation? Yes. And just to be clear, what was the statement he said about how long he was here? 30 to 40 minutes. But, but his phrase was, I was here or you know I was, I was here? I was here 30 to 40 minutes. Not the prize, but I can't help it sometimes. What else was going on in your life right there? This just, um, just working hours and hours. I don't understand what you're saying. Were you going to get married? I was, I was planning on getting married. I was planning on to. And had Alex Murdoch mentioned anything to you about your upcoming nuptials? Yes. And when was that? The day after was, I'm thinking. The day after this? I'm, I'm thinking it was, after yes. the conversation yes. you said? Where were you? At Miss Libby, at the house. And uh, what did he say about your marriage, your upcoming potential marriage? I heard you was getting married. I said, yes. He said, if I could, um, he was let me know because the wedding's going to be expensive. I said, well, thank you. The wedding's going to be expensive? He said, the wedding's going to be expensive. I said, well, thank you. Did he offer to help? Yes, he offered. He offered. That's the type of person, a good person. And have you ever mentioned the wedding to you before? No. Mm -mm. Did you mention that to him before? No, uh -uh. Hey, did he have a conversation, anything else about your job? Were you working at the school? Yes, at the school, yes. Did Mr. Murdoch mention to you about your school and your position there? Yes. Tell him what he said, please. He said that, um, you know, if you need a position at school, you know, my good friend is there. I said, yeah, I know, worked at the school, the principal. 
In my opinion, the timeline was very important in this conversation with Shelley Smith, but not with the sled agents, where Murdoch appeared to have no concept of time, and it really was like trying to nail Jelly to the wall. So is Murdoch a good person, or a highly manipulative, coercive controller who knows exactly how to play people and exactly how to read people? Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst, and if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.